Hello, Rachel. How are you? Hi, Ryan. You know, I just saw this amazing match. Yeah? Yeah? Yeah. I don't really think of Shiver as a match, more of a ritual <laughs> ceremony, but okay. It's no, a no. Match. It's a match against God, I guess. You're right. TKO that one, <laughs> you fucker. You fucker is right. You fucker. Fucker. So we are Yum Yum Podcast, and this is our show Yum Yum 5, in which we talk about Babylon 5. I'm Ryan, that's Rachel, and we are re-watching and discussing Babylon 5. So if you've not seen the series before, we recommend that you watch it, because we are going into the full details of it. So, yes, if you are new to the show of Babylon 5, we do say stop now go watch the entire thing and come back. I know you're saying, how does TKO have things to spoil for down the line? Well, (laughs) we'll find a way to do so. So you have been warned you are not allowed in our Mutai. Uh, Rachel, Yum Yum is the title. Could you actually explain Yum Yum for people who don't know? Because a little while ago... Uh, you know, someone was talking about like, oh, they're called Yum Yum 5 because of like some line of dialogue from Star Trek, but I kind of didn't understand what that meant. Could you kind of just give us all the refresher course about Yum Yum? Do I have to? Yes. Okay. You have to sit shiver and give us a refresher course on Yum Yum. Oh, well... It's kind of your prayer that you do at the start of each episode to re-explain the nature of Yum Yum. But it's I a guess nature, it's a part of grieving. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Star Trek. Oh. <laughs> it's lost its way. So what is it? <laughs> it's a line of dialogue from one of the stupidest shows on television, Star Trek Discovery, <laughs> from a non-character called Commander Nan, who then gets her name changed, Commander Nan D. Well, she gets the last a, name. D a, is her a, last name. Of course, an engineer and <laughs> is the security chief. But, and then... Mm-hmm. And then and then, unceremoniously and then. leaves the show to guard seeds on a spaceship. But she says yum yum. What the most important thing is, we named ourselves yum yum to commemorate, to honor, to forever remember, to cherish, to mock, to whatever it is you want, to forever immortalize the weirdness that is the line yum yum, in which she was asked... By a main character, an ordinary question, do you want to go kill someone? And she, a character we don't know anything about, licks her lips sexily and says, yum yum, in reply. We just want to forever let everyone know that that was a line written in a modern television show. So Walker Smith would say it, right? That's a question. In this episode of Babylon 5, who's the person that would have said yum yum if it was handled by Star Trek in the current So landscape. what's your answer? You say Walker Smith? I, You know, I, I have two answers. I'll give you one that fits our traditional standard. It would have to be Walker Smith after saying a line of racism. 
Mm-hmm. And the real answer to me is Larry Dottilio, after cashing in his fucking check for writing the script, he was laughing all the way to the bank with this one. He must have been having a big grin. He's like, I can't believe, Jay, I can't believe that that Michael Straczynski let me have my boxing episode. I can't believe that he let me do that in his big sci-fi show, but I got away with it. I got away with it, damn it. I'm imagining him stroking like a big cartoony mustache while saying it, like, nah, and I got away with it too. <laughs> there was no teenagers to stop me this time, and their damn dog. No, it, it it's Larry. Larry's laughing all the way to the bank, and he's saying yum yum while doing so. But we're getting hyperbolic, we're getting turned on, because we are talking about Babylon 5's episode called TKO, which is an infamous episode. But before we get into its infamy, let's get into its description, Rachel. Which... Is infamous too. Yes. So, Give us what the DVDs describe this episode as. So according to the DVDs, this is as such... No rounds, no rules, no gloves. To these decrees, alien followers of the brutal fighting art of Mutai add another. No humans! But a determined boxer from Earth, Greg McKinney, aims to knock that edict flat. Plus a rabbi, uh, Theodore, uh, what was it? Theodore... Bikel. Bikel. Uh, we had to look this up just to make sure. Uh, plus, a rabbi, Theodore Bekel, guides a Vonover in a long overdue ritual of Shiva. Now, that description is the episode. Yeah. In terms of how crazy it is, where you get pitched, this is going to be a boxing story or fighting story about a character that's never been on the show and never will be here again. They, they do mean, threaten with a sequel. They They never matter. And it's out of nowhere, and it connects to nothing relating to the show. And then, but it's some action. And then there's a B plot in which a main character is involved, and it relates nothing to the A plot. That description, as bizarre as it sounds, but, but- captures captures how bizarre it is seeing these two plots next to each other in the same episode. It is completely bonkers. They start off together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do that where they start off together and then they leave at the same time too. Not together, but they leave at the same time, these two plots. It's... Yeah, but, but represented by the two characters yeah, arriving yeah. on Babylon Yeah, yeah, five. yeah. Well, it was a pleasure travelling with you, Mr. Smith. It's not every day you meet a man with such an interesting calling. Same here, Rabbi. Take care. Shalom. Tell us what uh, you can remember about what it was like seeing TKO for the first time. You've told us in the past you've had some up-and-down moments when you were watching B5 that first time, those moments where you're like, is this going to be the show? But here we are, we're midway through season one, where you kind of know what the show is. How was it? I did not enjoy this episode, but what saved it for me was how much you hated watching it with me. That 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 brought a lot to the experience. Because I was shit-talking it. Yeah, you were a bit more <laughs> reserved and just silently judging it on this mm. viewing. That's the main thing that I remember. I remember, like, the few episodes before you were like, oh, we're on the disc with TKO. <sighs> yeah, right after, like, Signs and Portents, we yeah. had TKO. Fuck me. 
But you didn't like it. No, no. I liked the shiver part, mm-hmm. and I did not like Walker Smith. I did not like the way that Garibaldi is shoved in this episode. It's like, well, we want to do this thing. And we need and, a character to be need, in it. We need a character that we know, because otherwise nobody's going to want this. And who's scrappy and nobody, enough to be in this plot? Nobody wants this anyway, but yet here it is. Okay, before I get into my history and the legacy of it too, real question, who else could have had that plot in the main cast of characters other than Garibaldi? Like, like, there's no reason he should be in the plot either, but like, no. the understanding is, because he's a down-on-his-out, scrappy kind of guy, of course he knew a boxer yeah. from the past. Like, who he's else? the most logical choice. Maybe Londo. But it's like, well, he's an he's an ambassador. He, but then I also go, but Michael Garibaldi's the security chief, and he seems to have a lot of free time in this episode. A lot, a lot of free time, <laughs> and yet the episode emphasizes how much of a pain in the ass it is to get time off. Well, um, he for seems high ranking members of the staff, just like doing his patrol. Nah, he's he's getting rid of those those damn slappers. <laughs> my my slappers. With a med lab seal yet. And I bet you two beauties are a couple of brain surgeons, huh? My history is, I've watched this episode, of course. Grew up watching the first season many a times. Saw this episode every time. I am not a person who skips episodes by uh, willingly. I always watch episodes, including TKO. And my reaction to TKO was very visceral. I've never liked TKO it is not one that I think is worth anyone's time, except for the B-plot. But that B-plot angers me in a way that we'll talk about when we get there. But I think that this episode is almost entirely worthless. If it wasn't for the Ivanova side of it, this episode would be the worst of the season. Thankfully, it does have that of one of a side, and so it survives being the worst of the season for me. It is not one to survive that legacy for other people. I hate the Garibaldi side of the story, but I don't hate it as much as the full Garibaldi story we got a couple of episodes ago with Survivors. Uh, It's the old argument. Which are the episodes that are worse to you? Ones that leave you bored and numb inside, and they're forgettable? Or episodes like TKO, in which they completely don't belong here. They're baffling. They anger you. They, It's the age-old debate that we have on this podcast. And I have always thought, like, what is this? It's always fascinated me, TKO. I'll give it that. Like, I look at it and I go, what are you trying to do with this episode? Because even the bad episodes like Survivors or the next one, Grail... I understand what they were trying to do narratively. They had a theme. They had an idea, and it may not have worked well, or may have been executed poorly, but I understood what they were trying to do, and most importantly, they belong in Babylon 5 as a show. They tie back to ideas or genre things in the show. This one doesn't, except for the Ivanova side. The Garibaldi side... None of it fucking belongs in this show. It could be in any show. This could have been a Quantum Leap episode, you know, where he leaps into a boxer, which I'm, I, I know there's an episode where he does do that. So 
why is it here? And that's one of the things, obviously, we'll get into. But legacy, Rachel. You knew its legacy before you watched it because of my reaction of, ugh, TKO. And you know, if I react like that, that must mean it's a very bad episode. You're aware of its legacy. This is often heralded as one of, if not the worst episodes of Babylon 5. Yeah. How do you feel about that statement? It rings true to me because it feels so out of place. Mm. Like the Mutai stuff. Like, and the Shiva stuff also feels out of place place because it's contrasted with the Mutai. Yeah, and they don't connect. No, and it's just like, are they trying to say something here and they've just missed the mark or have they just had nothing and they've cut it together like a normal episode would be cut together, which would have those links, which just ends up making you more confused Mm. but you also don't want to give any energy to thinking about it because it's just like it doesn't feel like they gave a shit about making it a good episode as a whole they were like oh we have these two ideas (laughs) throw them in throw them in i when i look at the catalog of episodes that are lumped into the bad pile this one does stand out because at least infection and at least uh, uh, Grey 17 is missing or exogenesis or even to a minor degree survivors and there's other ones we could rattle off. I could at least understand why they failed as Babylon 5 episodes. That was trying to be a Babylon 5 episode and they failed. Infection. Sci-fi story. Sci-fi things dealing with themes that we've see we'll see in the show and have seen in the show fails though, yeah. uh, and Gray Seventeen is missing again. Things that feel like you could do this in the world and of Babylon Five with the themes and the genre fails. This one, the boxing plot, the Mutai plot. This isn't this this doesn't belong here. Even the fucking King Arthur <laughs> episode belongs in this show. Because it's tying into PTSD and faith and mythology and whatever else. This, this, no. And I don't. Not at all. Not I, even close. I don't know how you would change it to make it work. Because there's an interesting sort of element with the idea of the alien saying, no, we do not want you humans to become a part of this thing this is a part of our culture yeah the humans have interfered with all of these things they are not welcome we want to keep this thing as our own yes but that isn't the point what's your problem pal you all of you you intrude upon our worlds make mockery of our customs meddle in matters you do not understand but humans have no place in the Mutai. It is ours, and we will not let you dishonor it. Not now. Not ever. We should eat our vegetables first, Rachel. We will talk about the Walker-Smith plot 
And you hit the nail on the head in which what what's it trying to go for? It seems like it's trying to go for something about humans meddling with alien cultures and then being accepted, but also it's like a Rocky story. And the issue unfolds not just because of it being a boxing story, which feels so out of step. Again, out of step, out of place. It's not saying anything. It's not got anything to say about that issue you're touching upon. No, but that it's in that one scene as a, like, you need to respect this, mm-hmm. and then the dude who's explaining it to Walker is just like, you must do, you must do it with great honour. And it's just like, okay, maybe this could be something, but then that's just the end of it, and then they just do the, like, hand signals. Mm-hmm. As recognizing that, like, oh yeah, he gets it. He knows to do he this thing, the and they're doing it back to him. And there's this mutual respect that's been gained. But it's just like, but is that enough? Well, most of the things that he learns about the culture, we don't get to see. Thus, we don't get to learn about the culture either until he demonstrates that he's familiar with it. But by then, we don't understand it still, and we don't care. All we know is they will punch each other, and he'll most likely win, or at least survive. uh, Because the episode tonally is leaning towards that from the beginning with him. Uh, With the alien culture thing, it has to actually spend time on it. It If it wanted to do that. Yeah, if it actually is interested in doing that. It should actually spend time dealing with it because you are actually um giving it sh- not enough credit in terms of throughout the entire story they're weaving through this um this issue that is present that the aliens bring up of this outsider coming into their culture and co-opting it for selfish means not just because he's an outsider either the episode also, through that, shows us how Walker Smith is a racist. He's often using derogatory phrases against these aliens with absolute yeah. casual disregard for them. And if the episode actually wanted to spend time on that and show us a character learning about a different culture and becoming a part of it and accepting it and getting over their own prejudice and their own self-interest... That would be great. It could be good. It would be something. Would it belong in this show? Mm, I don't think so. Not not this boxing story. But they don't even spend time on it. There's no point in the episode in which I go, oh, Walker Smith has learned the error of his bigotry. I don't even think the episode recognizes he had a bigotry. No. No, I don't think it does. I don't, I don't think it. it grapples with that. Why? Why doesn't it grapple with it? What's it doing in the A-plot? We're talking about, like, how it's not doing things. What is it focusing on? I don't fucking know. I don't know what the thematic statement of this storyline is. What's it spending screen time on? What's actually physically happening if they're not doing these things that sound like would make a story happen? What are they doing with the time? They're... Leading up to the match, like it's like 
I want to fight. Or you can't fight, but I want to fight. I challenge him to a fight. You're going to have a fight in three days. Has fight. Leaves Babylon 5. Oh, and it's like that, isn't it? We don't learn anything about Walker Smith as a character. Like, okay, we just watched the episode. Oh, oh, oh. He went to a titty bar with Garibaldi. Well, I'm assuming that it's a titty bar because the waitresses had three tits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I don't know why. I just imagined I, that they were topless. I take it back. We do learn a few things about Walker Smith. What we learn primarily is he's the best. He's the best. That Garibaldi's ever seen. He's the best I've ever seen. It's like Star Trek Discovery. Where a character just on screen says out loud that this character's great over and over and over again, and we're supposed to buy that as them being a great character rather than them demonstrating any characteristics that are genuine or noble or good, uh, or at least ones worth wanting to watch for 45 minutes. We just watched the episode. Could you tell me what happened to him? Backstory-wise, like what were the details? Could you actually tell me the details? Not just um, he got he got squared out of a thing, but like, could you actually tell me any intricate details about uh, it? Uh, I feel like anything I say, you're going to be like, yeah, but then what? Um, he worked his way up for a shot at a title match, and mm-hmm. then some shady people were like, "Nah, it's not your time yet. We'll give you a lot of money, basically, if you like just." bow out, retire for a few years, and mm-hmm. then come back and take another shot. And he's just like, no, I've worked too hard. Um, and he was really rude to them. So then they doctored his blood test results to make it look like he was doing amphetamines, which he was not. Mm. Uh, but that got him kicked out of like in losing his right to be a boxer on earth so he's been bumming around trying to get some maybe legitimate fights maybe non-legitimate fights for about two years Mm. and then he has gone okay i'm gonna go to babylon 5 get a shot at the mutai and that'll give me enough notoriety in the press that they'll have to let me back into boxing rachel i didn't know you memorized the script (laughs) That's exactly <laughs> verbatim how he says it. In that one big machine gun fire exchange of exposition he has with Garibaldi. Well, whoa, I forgot, I, whoa, whoa, I whoa, forgot the names of the groups. Rachel, he said that no, too. No, 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 he didn't. I don't remember that. Rachel, could you stand up? Do you have the script underneath <laughs> your big fat ass? I don't see it anywhere. <laughs> Did you really remember? Wait a moment. Rachel, pull your hair back. Larry Dottilio, <laughs> you're in the studio? You, you have a lot of questions to answer, mister. I've got a report sheet here, and, and we've got a lot of stuff to talk about. Your parents are very disappointed in you. You let me go on for that whole time.
time just for you to make that one fucking joke, didn't you? No, I thought about it halfway through because I was like, this is as enthralling as watching the episode display this. Oh, like, like, you I just thought saying, I did no, a better job. No, no, but you just saying the facts <laughs> is how the episode displays it. They don't tell a story. They just display. They just display facts. Here Not is going. exposition. You don't feel anything. You don't care about Walker Smith. You don't buy that him and Garibaldi were ever friends, let alone know each other. And you don't buy that Garibaldi would even engage in this plot. And if you don't buy that he's engaging in this plot, why are we engaging in this plot? We don't. We, we don't. <laughs> Larry, bad boy. You did a bad one this time. Damn snakehead caught me by surprise. That snakehead is over 90 years old and fought in over a thousand mutai. You knew who he was all the time? Hey, look, look, you want to get your head handed to you, and I think it's a lousy idea, so sue me. But I had nothing to do with what went down with the mutai dough. You did that all by yourself. How do you feel about this statement? I feel that the episode itself with this story accidentally is racist because... The way they display the mood high <laughs> feels like such a like a Westerner's viewpoint on martial arts. This is the uncivilized, brutal form of something that we have a dignified version of. It's like the dances with wolves kind of thing of like once the once the once the you know the the noble American man becomes a part of this culture and tames it and understands it, then it is actually true and noble. Like those damn mutarians or whatever they called themselves, they wouldn't let humans in. How dare they? And I don't know. It's it's very odd to me that in this show. They have, like, the head of the Mutai, the Mutai Doe guy. They have, like, that, I can't remember the actor's name, but they got that actor who's, like, always the old sensei guy. And I don't know, it's just very weird to me how the episode, like, feels like it's racially coding these aliens. Yeah. In such a specific way, while in most of the other alien cultures we've seen, they don't feel as specifically coded. Like, Londo, the Centauri, are uh, 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 obviously emulating off of multiple colonialist cultures. The Roman Empire, the French, uh, even some Asian cultures in there too. And and the Nan, they feel like they're, like, you know, very hard to pin down as just one specific group in real life. But these guys here, with that actor there doing the voice that he does in everything he does in which it's almost a caricature-type voice of him going like, It feels insensitive on its own right. It bad. But am I am I reaching them? What do you think? No, no. It, yeah, it's uncomfortable. And it feels like it's coming from a place of ignorance, not a place mm. of malice. Yeah, it feels like somebody who's into boxing really likes kung fu movies, and they're like, wouldn't it be cool if we did both of them? And it's like, you need a little bit more depth here, man. You need to you need to do something more, because also, are the people who organize the Muay do they ever come across as uh, with any form of compassion from the writer? No, not really. Like, we are always on the side of Walker Smith. 
then it's just like his path is the path to glory and we should be supportive of him because Garibaldi's understanding even when he's not supportive of Walker Smith. Yeah, it's there's no layers or um, dynamics or, or different points of view in this story. They present them, but they don't actually follow through on them. They have that random alien guy who looks like a Drazi with skin disease, but it's not a Drazi. He's there to be the fanatical guy, to be like, you're not allowed, and you're like, you don't take him seriously because he's just a cartoonish straw man, heretic villain. And then the actual head of the Mu Tai, he doesn't really get a point of view to bestow. He just says, you're not allowed. And then once they do challenge he's like you're allowed i guess the actual fighter the one he's fighting against has no personality no for a rocky ripoff which this clearly is or if you want to be generous a raging bull ripoff or any of these real life boxing things the one thing i know about these is the people have characters to them like that guy needed to have an over-the-top character to him in some way, because that's how this works, you know? Like, Walker Smith is named after Sugar Ray. Like, Sugar Ray's real name, Sugar Ray Robinson's real name was Walker Smith. That's a deliberate choice. And guess what? He, as a boxer, had a very distinct personality, not just in terms of his physique, but, like, he had a character that he would put on for for show. You needed that from Walker Smith, and you needed that from the other boxer guy, because that's a part of the fun when watching boxing movies, isn't it, Rachel? You're not a fan of boxing movies. No, but you know what? I am a fan of movies in general, and I like for them to be characters. Yeah, characters. Please, please give us some characterization here, because the B-plot has le- lots of different nuances and lots of different points of view in which you could argue, like, mm, that was actually the wrong approach, or I actually agree with this person. I actually didn't think that this... Here, all you have is feeling numb, and every time it cuts back to it, you sigh. It's just a big... (sighs) Here we go. Is there any positives in the A-plot? Is there a single positive? I was mildly entertained by a random background nun that was very into the Mutai. (laughs) Does that count? It's the closest. I don't know if I can conjure up a single positive for it. The guy who plays Walker Smith, I've always thought in my recollections, was a good actor. I couldn't tell you on this watching if he was a good actor or not, because he had to deliver these lines that felt so unnatural. It's hard to tell if he's a good actor. Like we talked about in Survivors, in which... That actress who played Major Kemmer is often talked about as a terrible actress. But again, you give an actor terrible lines, terrible story, terrible character, you're going to get a terrible performance. Rarely are you actually going to get one actor who's so good that they rise above that, especially in television. It's not like this guy was played by Tim Curry who can do that, where Tim Curry can turn any shit into gold just because he's so charismatic and fun to watch. This guy, he's there. He delivers lines. I'll give you one positive, and it's very cheap. Yeah? Two times in the episode, 
I had a huge laugh because to let us know that things were going well, the director directed Walker Smith and Caliban at separate points in the episodes to let us know things are okay by doing a big Twin Peaks thumbs up. <laughs> oh, a mild thing. I like um, that it does get to show off a lot of the alien makeup and designs yeah. in the background and the sort of little touch of like the main fighter mm. the Walker goes up against has like white blood. Yeah. That's an interesting touch. I'll, I'll give it that. It adds to further world building. Production and... department, you did your job okay. Yeah, they did fine enough. I mean, their outfits were a little cheap looking. You have always been thick, Garibaldi. That's what the game's all about. To be the best, you have to face the best. I could take Vasaro on crutches, but Gior, he's going to show me where my heart is. And maybe I'll show him a little something too. I would be remiss if I did not mention it, people would lose their minds. One of the background details is there's an ad for Zima drinks, and that's ironic because Zima does not exist anymore, and it was a very much of its time type of drink, so it's very funny that in this sci-fi show in the future that Zima still exists. It's kind of like Blade Runner, right, where Blade Runner has all of these things like Pam Am and all that, where... It exists no more, but in the movie, it's in the future, so it exists in the context of that. Here, it's just a funny thing to notice. Hey, that's in the background. And the thing I think we need to end this discussion on with Walker Smith, because there's nothing else. Is the fights entertaining? Mm, Not really. No. Boring, we don't understand the rules of the fights, we don't understand... Well, they make it seem like there are no rules. But there have to be rules. It's a... Fo- it's a ge- like, it's a sport. Yeah, but th- they make no effort. There's etiquette, apparently, but, you know, we don't get to see that at all. We just see them punch until the old man says enough for some reason, even though there was supposed to be, like, no, you know, whatever... The last the DVD thing, description says, and they say it in the episode. The last thing to discuss is you said this when we finished the episode, and one of our patrons, and that's right, we have a Patreon people. So if you want to support us and talk to us about things in a more in-depth nature, you can join our Patreon. Talked We've about how mid episode stings. Uh, Walker Smith says in two times in the episode, Hey Garibaldi, you gotta watch your back. And you and uh one of our patrons says, Oh well, that's important. That's but, like foreshadowing because but it's not important. It's incidental foreshadowing, but it's No, it's deliberately there. It is deliberately there, but you could have done another better plot and had somebody say that to him. That's where my disagreements come in. I think even on that level, this is very piss poor, weak writing of a setup to a payoff because him or anyone just saying, hey, Michael, watch your back, doesn't really satisfy you when at the end of the season he gets shot in the back by his right-hand man because... Well, he didn't need to look at his back there because he was trusting his right-hand man. It's not, you know, like it's one of these things where 
it's just such a stretch to make the writing seem smarter than it actually is. Like, it is deliberately there. But would what do you classify as good use of foreshadowing? Because we often talk about, like, foreshadowing exists and we point at it and we say, hey, isn't that nice? Here, though, this is one of the times in which I'm pointing at it and I'm saying, it's not good. What makes foreshadowing good and bad? It doesn't stick out like a sore thumb. Oh. Like it does here where it's just like, in your face. Is it really that in your face? When you know what happens to Garibaldi, it's just like, oh, that that is clearly there to be a reference to this mm. thing. And then they do it twice. To really hammer it in. And like you said, it doesn't even really work contextually. <laughs> it's off, It's weird because to me it's never stuck out because I never even thought about it as foreshadowing until people on the internet who want to defend TKO and defend this story by saying, well, it does matter because Walker Smith says, watch your back, and Garibaldi gets shot in the back at the end. You see, it's not clever. That's the thing. It's not clever. It doesn't feel natural. The guy says it, and I don't believe that that's an aspect of Garibaldi's character that was a massive character flaw of, like, him not literally watching his back. And people go, well, see, his character figuratively doesn't watch his back either. What do you mean? When in this show has he exhibited that behavior enough to make it a character flaw and dramatic irony by the end of the season? Like, Garibaldi is a supremely suspicious man who's often, like, watching over his shoulder. And so, and we could argue, is that, am I wrong there? I'm willing to admit that you could bring up points about, like, his dark past and this and this. But a random character just saying, watch your back, isn't clever foreshadowing of a guy getting shot in the back. It's very literal, too. Yeah. It, it's not uh, the same kind of foreshadowing stuff as when Delenn does things in this show and then four seasons later we find out she committed war crimes, right? Like, that's like, oh, okay, that was, like, nicely and quietly done. Here, yeah. it's also it coming from... embedded a- into the episode as well as giving it a nice little nod. Yeah. Like, we we appreciate it when it's, like, a nice little nod not a bright light, like, hey, yeah. hey, look at this. Aren't we smart? Well, it's not even pretending that it's that smart. It's just like it exists in the thing. It's very hard for me to determine what makes good and bad foreshadowing in way of expressing it through words because I just feel it when I watch it, right? I go, that's shit. Yeah. That's just, just poorly all, handled. All down and to it's, the hard to, it's hard to, to break it down because for some people this is enough and like this is just just another thread in the massive tapestry of genius that is Babylon 5. I like Babylon 5, of course I do, but not all of it is quality, and this is not quality foreshadowing to me at all. It is completely worthless. And it never factors into my rewatch of Babylon 5 when Garibaldi gets shot, I never get that reaction from this line. What I react to more is 
few episodes ago when his right-hand man was just introduced casually as just a random security guy that walks around on the station. That garners more of a response from me emotionally and intellectually than this does about the incident with Garibaldi. And Mm. it has to relate to character with this stuff too. Because if we're going to talk about... Um, like lines of dialogue that get thrown away that hearken to a flaw or a trait about our main character that's having this line said to them or about them you need it to actually feel like it's relating to that character more so than this and this is a perfect segue into the Ivanova subplot which is weird that it's a subplot when her rabbi has a line that I think is far stronger as an example of not just foreshadowing, but a line that will be an echoing and damning statement about Avonova, which is, he says to her that you cannot keep running away from your own heart, not yeah. even in space. And that line carries much more weight overall in the show, especially later when Avonova loses people like Talia and like... uh uh, like uh, Marcus, and she internalizes and she tries to run away from it, and it just keeps failing and keeps being horrible for her. That is a better example of this than Walker Smith just saying, Watch your back, Michael, and then he leaves. Then the tragedy is greater than I thought. Without forgiveness, you cannot mourn, and without mourning, you can never let go of the pain. I have to go on duty. You cannot run away from your own heart, Susan. Not even in space. Why isn't this the A-plot? That's my biggest anger with it being in the story, is this is so clearly crying out to be the main story. I don't think the network would have allowed it. You think? Yeah, at this stage in production, I just don't think that contextually the network would have allowed for a whole episode to be about Shiva. So I I think that they wouldn't have even really entertained the thought, even though story-wise, that would have been so good. Yeah, they had a whole episode that was about religious ceremonies. Yeah, but that had action Mm. and more sci-fi stuff. So you think it's a network constraint, not a writer mislapse? Oh, I think it's a mix. So I, I, I think that, like, as a showrunner and as a writer, they would have thought, we can't get away with this. We can't run the risk of putting all our eggs in this basket. So we are going to go in the opposite direction with this other plot so that we get to have this moment. Interesting. I, yeah, I've never thought about it like that. Yeah, that's an interesting way to think about it, I guess. I just look at this as a classic example of Babylon 5's writing team, including JMS, who I know didn't write this episode, but he he uses he has this issue too, as he goes on to be just a solo writer. There's just this odd thing where they don't understand which one's the more important plot. It's just a blind spot in this entire show. There are so many episodes, even good episodes, in which they've got the plots the wrong way around in terms of of emphasis. And here, I think they could have done it, but I think they didn't didn't 
realize that they could have done it. I think they didn't look at it hard enough and think there's actually a lot we could do here. This, you know, we talk about how Garibaldi got the short end of the stick in terms of a big character-centric episode with Survivors. Yeah. Avonov is the one that gets the short end of the stick realistically because we've had moments of deep character stuff with her, but they've always been the B-plot. Yeah. She gets sidelined. Here, this should have been her episode. 100% 100% her episode. Garibaldi should have factored into this story as maybe the Sinclair role. Because who was the one that was engaged in her father's dying plot in that episode back in se- early in season one? It was Garibaldi. Yeah. And yet he is suspiciously absent from this plot. Yeah, he's he's busy. He's busy f- fucking helping some guy punch an alien in the face. It's so bizarre when you think of it in the grander context of what we've seen. It's like, well, why isn't Garibaldi involved in this? He was involved in it to begin with. And I just personally think that they didn't realize that they could actually just have an episode about Ivanova grieving for 45 minutes. Yeah. I just think they they didn't even think about it being a possibility. They always thought about it as this could be a thing we cut away to. Yeah, yeah. Just like they did with her dying father the first time around. Just like they do with a lot of Avonova in the season thus far. This is the one where this should have been her version of And the Sky Full of Stars. This should have been her version of Believers or her version of Survivors or her version of Born to the Purple. This should have been her big character episode. And I get frustrated that it isn't. See, the boxing plot annoys me to shit, but this plot annoys me more because I imagine the world in which we had this as just the episode and nothing else. Because, my God, how fucking crazy is it when we have Shiver and then we cut to the fucking Mutai? Oh. Oh, my God. It was... Like, I just had my hands covering my face. And I, like, just buried in them just being like why he was a russian jew and a scholar a man devoted to logic and to reason and above all to peace Mm, yeah, all right. He's got reach on you, so get inside, but watch his knees when you do. And keep moving. Don't let him trap you. A part of why this plot doesn't congeal with the other one, and we were talking about this when watching it, is it almost feels like they are two different episodes. Yeah. And they've been edited together because... Not even stitched together. That would be too strong of a word. It's just that they're edited in the same thing. And what are some examples of that that we were talking about off mic that you kind of want to bring up? We were having a discussion about the direction and pacing of dialogue in specifics. So, like you acknowledged before, like the, I'm going to refer to it as like the TKO aspect and then the shiver aspect. Mm -hmm. It was like the TKO dialogue is like this kind of machine gun exposition 
blast at you. They have to get through it. It's like West Wing. Just get through the dialogue. La, 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 just fire through. And, and the audience won't yeah. notice that you've just talked about nothing. Yeah. And it, it just goes by, but it just feels like... I don't know. Because I'm trying, I'm struggling to find the right metaphor to explain how it's like a car wreck, but it's going really slowly at the same time. So you're noticing all of these things that are going wrong, even though there are other things that, like, you acknowledge that this would work in other episodes and has worked in other mm. episodes, like. They're just walking and talking through the Zocalo and dumping exposition. And there are countless times that that happens in Babylon 5. And it works it's because the majority of the time. It's all plot, no moments. We've had that complaint with some previous episode stories as well. Avonovas is the opposite, in which it's got plot for sure, but it's about the moments. It's about the quiet moments, it's about the funny moments, it's about the sad moments, it's about a person denying their faith and also denying the ability to forgive. And are they allowed to do that? It's about Sinclair being a good friend. It's about the rabbi trying to not just be her uncle, her, her, her one of her last kind of ties to her past, but also trying to be a good rabbi, trying to save and help one of his fellow Jews. It's about all these moments. It's not just them machine gun firing exposition about backstories and plots. It's it's them quietly talking to one another and exchanging emotions. And that's why it feels like two different episodes. You You pair them together and it is as if you're on a roller coaster ride and you're about to fall off at points it it is bizarre in terms of the direction like what was the direction here where they recognize that the Avonva plot should be taken more seriously and somber and then the Walker Smith plot needs to just be fired through because it's just nonsense what's this Especially the house. Zoon burgers, Jovian tubers, and a miner's draft to Traxian Ale. You drench it and catch it, and you'll swear you're back in that place on Cestus. Where the waitresses all had three. Yeah, yeah. That's the joke. You always were a classy guy. To give the positives of the Ivanova story, it's consistent with her character. That is the big thing. She is making a conflict, an inner conflict, and she's denying her faith, and she's denying forgiveness, and she's pushing away her friends and her community, and it doesn't feel like it's only there just because we need a plot for this week. It feels it's as if it's a natural extension of a character flaw or an ongoing character trait that Susan Ivanova has and that we've seen develop throughout the season thus far. It doesn't feel disingenuous like Garibaldi teaming up with Walker Smith does. Her absolutely snapping uh, at the rabbi for having talked to Sinclair feels genuine. It's yeah. like, of course she would do that. Of course she would react like that. And then the like apology, that. equally so. And it her change of heart. Yeah, it doesn't feel like this was done to ratchet up tension and elongate the plot. 
it's like no that that really feels like what what the Ivana world we know at this stage would do and that's what makes us a successful character study is we're spending time with a character that we know to be pretty well defined and the show along with the rabbi and Sinclair is opening up this character and examining the parts moving around inside and trying to figure out how it all works that is what we're getting we're getting an interiority on a character who's very guarded yeah and we have her ridging up and realizing I've got to stop doing that because in the end it hurts me and also like I'm sh- I'm not forgiving my father for what he didn't give me mm. but his dying words were admitting that that was his fault and that he should have done better because he had she had held him to the fact that he had never budged that was a large part of the hatred or the disdain between her and her father was this fact like he never made the time he ne- was never there he never opened up he and he did he did at the end and that was enough in, in, in for her to actually turn around and realize actually i should do this i should do this and there's also this sense of I don't want to be like that anymore. I yeah. don't. I don't. I don't want to end up like how my father was. I want to be able to enjoy those deeper connections in a way that I didn't get from that relationship. No, and Claudia Christian just shows us what a great actress she is in this show. She has to cry and tell stories and make us believe in these stories about a character we never really got to know or meet and make us care. Obviously, the writing and direction is a part of that, but if Claudia Christian didn't bring it for this episode... Oh, she carries it. She carries the episode on her shoulders, as does a spotlight actor that we'll talk about later in the episode, but, like, she is the person we're here for. Her talking to Sinclair, for instance, that is probably one of my favorite scenes between those two characters in the entire show. Yeah. How do you feel about that situation in general? That's like a a part of the crux is she is grieving in the way that she can grieve. And external factors, her friend and commander and her uncle slash rabbi, are coming in saying, you need to stop doing it that way and grieve like this. And she bucks against that. She says, like, the way that I choose to grieve is up to me. Like, yeah. and that is for me to decide. Like, that's what, that's my choice. And you mm-hmm. don't get a say in that. How do you feel about how the episode broaches that subject and, and uh, talks about it and, and deals with it? I really like the way that Sinclair demonstrates his friendship Mm. because he acknowledges her feelings. Yes. He doesn't say, that's wrong, that's right. He's just like, yeah, you are feeling that way. But you do really need to think about this. And the way that he phrases it, I just, I love that delivery that he has as well 
the smoothness with which it comes out of like you really need to figure out what you're actually feeling. Yeah, before you choose and set it in stone forever. And that that plays on her. Yeah. It do, it's not in the moment, but you know that that's part of why it bubbles up. But my feelings are my own. And how I display them or not is my choice. Now, if I may return to my duty... Susan, before you make that choice, make sure you know what it is you're really feeling. I think some people would read the episode as being unfair to Ivanova's form of grief. The fact that these two figures basically say, you're doing it wrong, do it like this, and then narratively they they prove those characters to be right. That would be a very, you know, that's a very, very bleak, very like set in, like this is how it is kind of attitude. But I've had that attitude sometimes. Sometimes I look at it and go, look, she's grieving the way that Ivanova does. And is it really fair for you guys to come in and say that's unhealthy? And I think the episode touches upon that. And I think it's okay that our two characters that are coming in are doing it wrong at some points and overstepping their bounds because that's just how people are and that's true to those two characters. People don't always get it right. Yeah, and, there's and concern. The- They've, they're both concerned for Ivanova yeah. and that's what's important. The rabbi, he's a character we've just met, yet every single action he did in this episode, how I would describe it is... That's accurate. I've just met the guy. I don't know anything about him, but everything he did in the episode felt right. Like, that felt like that's what that character would do. That's how successful the episode actually can be as well, in spite of how failing the A-plot is. The rabbi, who I don't know, I've just met the guy, he's doing things like talking to Sinclair, and I'm nodding along going, of course he would do that. And of course he would react when Ivanova reacts to it the way he does, where he's just like, yes, I meddled, I'm a Jew, that's what I do, and all of that, and I care. And it's like, yeah, of course you do. Yeah. Of course you do. And I I think when it comes to Sinclair, I think he does it really well. I thought he handled himself very nicely in the situation in which I didn't feel he overstepped his bounds. I felt like he just gave his wisdom and let her do what she wanted to do. He just wanted, as a friend, to just voice his concerns. And isn't that his right to do so at some point as well? Yeah. Like Family and friends do have the ability... They should have the right to do that in situations like this, in which they're seeing to them someone in turmoil. They should at least express that they're noticing something. Yeah, like... People who look the other way do nobody favours. And I think I looked at it a bit differently of, like, both of... I saw it as the rabbi and Sinclair acknowledge that Vonover is grieving this way and it makes sense for her. Yeah. But 
both of them are like, this is not a long-term solution. Mm. You need to turn and face it. I didn't see it as them judging her for grieving that way initially and wanting to bottle it up. But that's how she saw it. Yeah, but she she was on the defensive. But it wasn't an approach to that that I'd really considered. Yeah, and here we are talking about layers and nuances in this story, and we're just talking primarily about just one scene at the moment. It says so much about how much the A-plot fails, that we can't do that, even for a singular scene, like we are here with, with Ivanova's shiver plot. I love the rabbi character. He is, without a doubt in my top 10 favorite one-off characters in Babylon 5. I think about him a lot. I wish that he was in another episode. Oh, yeah. It would have been great. The performance is joyous and wonderful and fully formed. He feels like a real person. Uh, The character is exuberant, but he's also solemn. He understands. He's wise, but in a different way to Sinclair. Yeah, uh, I love the touches, the moments of amazement of having traveled through the stars and being here on the space station. It's always great when we have characters acknowledge how fantastical this whole entire thing is. It's so cute when he's leaving and he's like, Sinclair, you have a miracle here. Yeah, it's it touches my heart because a part of it as a viewer, wouldn't you agree, is you wish that you could do the thing. You wish you could go out into space and be on this space station Mm. and experience the wow and the awe factor of all of that. And it's nice that every now and then Babylon 5 as a series acknowledges that. Yeah, and it's nice because it's just like, as like an average person, that's what I would be like if I walked on to Babylon 5. Yeah. I wouldn't be, like, a co-worker of a Bonifer working in CNC. That's just not where I imagine myself in that universe. I imagine myself walking off a transport and being like, wow. By the way, this Babylon 5 of yours, <laughs> Neskadol, a great miracle. Thank you. Another aspect I think is interesting when it comes to uh, people debating or trying to solve or trying to help with Ivanova's grief is uh, the rabbi, a part of his character, although he's very strongly an advocate for Ivanova herself, is he's also there to be there for the man who's died. Yeah. He's there to be like he, that guy's advocate. As well. He was a member of the community. He was your father. He was my friend. He deserves... Does he not deserve forgiveness in death, even? Mm-hmm. Like, I could understand why you didn't forgive him when he was alive, but, like, now he's gone. Does he not deserve that form of eternal rest in a lot of ways? And I think... In another episode, they would not have even broached that. I don't think they would even have engaged with that notion... But in this type of episode, in this type of show, they do. And it's a really complex thing to think about. Yeah. Because although you and 
you know, you and I are different spirituality-wise as people, that is a compelling notion. It is that thing of we're thinking about ourselves as a person who's grieving, but, like, what about the person who's gone? Should I be someone who actually forgives that person now that they're gone? And Avonova's challenged by that as well. And I think that's such an interesting avenue of ideology or understanding for the rabbi character to have because he's not just a family friend. He is a rabbi. He is there as a spiritual leader. He is there to help deal with the grieving process through a religious point of view. Yeah, he he has a role in... The community. Her community. And he stays true to that. Like, he's not just there just because he feels sorry for Vonova, which is obviously the main drive. He, like, he wants to help her. But he wants to help her not as a person, but as a Jew. And he also wants to help her father, who is no longer with us. And And there is also something that we've sort of skipped over, which is that he arrived... To deliver her legacy, like that um, that item, mm. assuming that she'd already sat Shiva, mm. he was just like, "Yeah, I'm gonna go and like deliver this thing and check in on somebody that I really care about." Yeah, he didn't go there assuming that she would need his help as a rabbi. He went there as a family friend first and foremost and then realized that she needed his help in Mm. both of the roles that he has in her life. I have mentioned in a previous episode that I grew up in small rural country town Australia. I've, you know, until moving to the city, I never really had met any Jewish people in my life and never seen a synagogue until I was in my 20s, stuff like that, you know, like, none of the understanding of the ins and outs of uh, that faith and culture were known to me outside of small snippets of media. I grew up, as you did, Rachel, in the age in which South Park and Borat kind of really defined how to look at... The Jewish culture, which is to be very mocking of it. And and there's reasons for why both shows did that, but let's not beat around the bush that it did, in fact, breed a lot of anti-Semitism just in in people of our age group who would just do it because it was a funny thing to say at the time. Which I know that wasn't necessarily those shows or people's intentions, but that it was a byproduct. Mm -hmm. Uh, It uh, was a consequence. I will say this, and I've said this a lot to my sister, and my sister agrees. My understanding of the Jewish faith's foundation still lays in the fact that it came from Babylon 5 in this episode, and future ones, and and Rugrats. Yeah, very similar for me, too. I think, like, I watched other media that may have referenced it, but I'm pretty sure my entire understanding of Hanukkah uh, as a child into early adulthood was, was Rugrats. Was Rugrats. And that's a great thing about media. If you're going to tackle these kind of subjects, whether it be faith or culture, 
you have to, in a manner, introduce these things, bring people who don't understand these things or are familiar with them, and bring them into an understanding by the end of the 20 minutes for Rugrats or 45 minutes for this. And this episode successfully does that. I didn't know what Shiver was. I walk away with an understanding of what Shiver is now. And I yep. walk away with an understanding of the the Jewish faith and how certain people uh, hold that to their hearts. Avonova yep. and the rabbi, very different people, but they're both deeply Jewish. Yeah, there's something else that I want to acknowledge about the way that they do Shiver in particular, which is... That it doesn't feel like it oversimplifies the idea of Shiva. Hmm. Like, it acknowledges that there's a depth that we're not getting to. And there's reasons for that in the story itself. Yeah. Because of Avonava and the rabbi, you know, he's in an area in which we don't have any family or friends. We'll get the Jewish community. You can, you know, Sinclair can come. We have to shorten the Shiva because, well it's been so long and stuff like that. You can still do that. Like they explain it. They make it very comprehensible for people who don't understand. But the most important thing, and uh, I think you'll agree with this, is it's handled with dignity and grace. Respect. It's very maturely handled. Yes. So many of the conversations that Ivanova has in her shiver... They're so much. They just, I, I, I'm wordless about them. Like the whole conversations that she has about her father, and about being a Jew, and her back and forth with the rabbi about faith and understanding, and not wanting to sit shiver and wanting to sit it, and all of that. It never felt tokenistic. No. It it doesn't. It feels like it matters and it's handled with that grace, respect and dignity and it it's just upheld. You spoke to the commander about this? Yes. A fine man. You should not have done that. I'm a rabbi. When I see a Jew denying one of our most basic traditions, I meddle. That brings us nicely to the actor's spotlight. Does it not? Yes, it does. So do you want to explain what this portion of the show is for those who are freshly tuning in to us? So our yes. actor's spotlight section of the show, in which... We select one of the actors that has a guest spot in this specific episode to highlight them, uh, have a look back at their careers, see what we know them for, what their noteworthy roles are, whether we've seen them or not. Share some interesting facts about them, and as you said, look at them in this episode, because... Just shine a light, what makes, as spotlights do. Because a part of these shows is those guest spot performances, in which they come in for one episode, maybe more, and they stick with you. They have to deliver the important job of making you care about characters that aren't in our main crew of people. And of course, the act we are having to discuss, Rachel, who is the one that we are shining the spotlight on for this one? Theodore Bickell. 
who plays Ivanova's loving uncle rabbi. Mm-hmm. His uncle in the non-family sense of yes. it. He's just like a good family friend. And so we are talking about him. Let's go into his performance within the episode. I already kind of gave my thoughts away minorly in terms of I do think that this is in the top 10 best guest performances that the show has. I think he is wonderful in this episode. He delivers so much to this role. He brings it to life. He feels like a real person. He feels like he has a real lived-in history with this character and with the Ivanova family. He feels like a real rabbi. He just is a genuine performance in the episode that is disingenuous and false for large swaths of it in its A-plot. He carries the episodes on his, on, on his shoulders along with Claudia Christian. They really make this plot work and feel so beautifully done, as well as the writing. But the, these two performances, he is adorable, he's annoying, he's, he's sweet, he's really intelligent. I, I love this character. I love this performance. I wish that we got to hear more about this character. I wish we got to see him again. This uh, is a been, great performance. Would have been great to see him again. Yeah. So what do you think of him in the episode? And what I, have you thought about him in this? I think he's great. He brings such warmth to the role. And it really does make him feel like a full character. And you mentioned this before, it's just like, we just meet him, but it's like all of these decisions feel true to the character because it's fleshed out. Mm. Like, his role in the plot and the character himself is fleshed out enough that you're like, yeah, that tracks, that makes sense, that feels right. He does something that only one other actor in this show does do, which is Bill Moomy does this in the first season and a half of Babylon 5, which is take a moment to be in awe of aliens yeah. and technology and all this stuff around them. Like, it's it's obviously in the script too, but but the performances, Bill Moomy does it with Laniv and, uh, and this guy does it with the rabbi. They just look over their shoulders and they're like amazed by some new life form they didn't even yeah. know existed. He calls the station a miracle, which is just a very sweet moment between him mm. and Sinclair. I always find it interesting too when you have deeply religious characters like your Lanier, like like this guy, and they're encountering things that are so beyond the comprehension of those religious tomes yeah. and texts, and they still try to... Uh, understand it and rationalize it and accept it. I love the conversation at the dinner in which they're talking about this Centauri fish. And he's like, is it kosher? And they're like, oh, I don't know. And he's like, oh, I didn't hear about it in the Torah. So I'm going to take a gamble on this one. Yeah, it was cute. (laughs) It's those nice little moments. He has this really great voice too because... Oh, yeah. Such a rich voice. It, it, the accent is really well done. I like the mixing of the multiple languages that he speaks. I felt like it was really great that the episode didn't have to stop to explain every single thing he said in a different language. Like, it wasn't just like every single time he said a phrase, 
somebody had to translate that for us, the audience. Most of the time, he just says stuff, and we yeah. just have to interpret what that is uh, from just the flow of the conversation. He is... Uh, I, I love his big beard as well. Yeah. I love his that big beard. That adds to his warmth, and he's... It gives him a jolly quality. For lack of a better turn of phrase, his rabbiness. Yes, yes. And uh, he is just charisma on screen. Oh, yeah. What I know of this actor, and this will get into what we've seen him in, I've seen him play a wide array of roles, but a lot of those roles really hinder on him having dialogue. He is an actor that you give him dialogue and he will deliver that dialogue. Like Andreas Katsoulis, you give them a phone book and they can read it to you and it will be enthralling. And it's the same here. It's a part of why I really like his performance as well in terms of Babylon 5 has failed time and time again with getting these great actors and character actors and not utilizing them the way they should be utilized. Here, he is utilized the way you need him to. You give him great amounts of dialogue and he absolutely nails it. He is there. He doesn't sing. This guy's known for singing as well, but he doesn't do that. But he delivers on being able to churn through all of this dialogue with ease, unlike the A plot in which they have to fire through that dialogue real quick because it's nonsense. Here, he really takes his time and really knows how to do the pauses and the emphasis and the little shakes of the head and the glances. It's... It's a finely tuned performance mm. for a one-off. Yeah. A professional is mm-hmm. the word you would use for this guy. A professional. Yeah. And we keep on going back to it, but the depth that he gives the character through all of those little nuances that really make it feel like it, it comes alive. Before he died, he entrusted me with a legacy, your legacy. I was going to give it to you after his funeral, but... You weren't there. The station was in a crisis at the time. I couldn't get away. Of course. You're a military officer in an important position. Duty must come first. I understand. And so would Andre. It's the way he raised you. We know him from a multitude of things. He's had a giant career on stage, screen, music. It, it's ludicrous yes, how prolific this guy was. 155 credits on just imdb on imdb but he's had various careers in the entertainment dis- industry and yeah. i don't i don't know if we've um mentioned it but he sadly passed away in 2015 he was 91 yeah and from all accounts i can gather he was still pretty active in his later years as an actor yeah, i think and, he moved away and- from acting his last role was in 2007 and uh um, I think it was a film called The Little Traitor. And that's in terms of film and TV. He, yeah. from my understanding, was a big stage actor, musicals yeah. especially. And I think I think he was like recording and performing his music. And he was an activist too. He yeah. was very much into equal rights and all of that stuff. He was very outspoken in the communities of there, out there, on the streets doing all of that stuff. Uh, seemingly, seemingly like an all-around really amazing person. Yeah. A few little things from his bio. He was mainly a folk singer. 
Oh man, I wish in he sang in of, this. <laughs> yeah. Like at the in, end of that in one terms episode. Of what style of musician he was? It, it would have been great if he sang at the end of the credits like Marcus does at the end of that yes. one episode. <laughs> oh. Because I read. Uh, he had a song specifically written for him in mind for, what was it, Sound of Music or something like that? Like well, one of those musicals? Um, he originated the Broadway version of Captain Von Trapp in mm-hmm. Sound of Music. So he yeah. was the first person to perform that role on Broadway. Yeah, I'm pretty sure really I read a, I read a piece of trivia that, uh, which, is it, it Roger like, Hammerstein or whichever one yeah, it is that it wrote would that? Ma- it would make sense that if they, they had him in mind or if they knew that he was going to originate the path, that it would be adjusted. We need to give him a song that yeah. this guy can sing really well. Yeah. And that's the point. Yeah. Um, he played a lot of Germans in his career. Germans and Russians, it seems. Uh, seems like the recurring statement. Uh, because... He can do, he could have done, he did like multiple accents. He was like a yeah. little dialect guy. Like every uh, time I've seen him, yeah. he's had a very different voice every yeah. time I've seen him. Um, I would say that the, I think the word is polygot. He knew upwards of six languages mm, mm. and like seemed to be able to adapt his accent to suit a lot of the languages that he knew, but like speaking with their accent in English. And he's been in a multitude of classics. He was in The African Queen, for fuck's sake, one yes. of the greatest films ever made. He was in My Fair Lady. The Defiant Ones. The, the Defiant Enemy Ones. Below, the Enemy Below. He has played a lot of villains, surprisingly, yeah. which is interesting because to get into my history with him as an actor, mm. it's Star Trek. He was Worf's adopted Russian father in that. And yeah. When I grew up, I would watch that episode of Family Family from TNG and this. Very similar ideas in both. Yeah. And he's playing basically the same character in both, but his performance is uniquely different still. Yeah. Like, he's still got the same voice. Uh, he's still got the same kind of warmth and nagging quality and inquisitive quality, but he still does deliver... Uh, a different type of nuance to both. But when I think of him, I do think of like this warmer person that is unappreciated by yeah. others around them. Like, I love Family as an episode of TNG, but I always miss, like, I always get upset with how Worf treats his adopted parents. I'm like, these uh, guys are the real heroes yes. of TNG to me. They're like the best people that we ever meet in TNG. We knew it wouldn't be easy for him growing up without other Klingons to turn to for guidance. We had to let him discover and explore his heritage by himself. Let him find his own path. So many parents could learn so much from the two of you. Oh, we we mentioned that we wish that he came back as this character, but he does come back in Babylon 5. He in is, the beginning. In the beginning, it's a Lenon. Yeah, I can't remember him in that, honest. I, I, I've only Lenin. watched in the beginning a few times, so... Yeah. Maybe if we do rewatch then talk about on the podcast, we can highlight him and be like, "Oh, look, look at him in here! What's he doing here?" Mm-hmm. Uh, he started his career fairly early. His first credit was when he was twenty-three, because mm. that was in nineteen forty-seven, and he was born in nineteen twenty-four. Mm-hmm. Um, a few fun. Other credits, he was in the Twilight Zone for an episode. Everyone's in the Twilight Zone. Yeah. He was in some murder she wrote, but none written by JMS. I double checked. Yes. Um, He was in an episode of Columbo. 
That's we got to talk about that. He's so good at that. He is probably the biggest piece of shit villain ah, in yeah. Columbo, like in the best ways. Because in that episode, do you want to talk about that episode? Do you remember what he was in that episode? Like he was the killer, obviously. Yeah. In Columbo, he's the killer. No, I'll let you take it. His whole thing was, <laughs> in a way, he was kind of himself in terms yeah. of he was a member of Mensa. Like he was a really intelligent guy, which this guy was in real life too. And his whole thing was he had. Uh, had this elaborate murder where he killed a guy and he used a record and a book thumping to make it sound like the guy got shot and killed in a delay in which he could have an alibi downstairs. Yep. And it's one of the greatest Columbo episodes because oh, yeah. it's, it's Columbo versing a super genius. Yes, it's and it's so great good. because Columbo is a genius. And that's one of the few episodes in which they acknowledge, someone openly acknowledges that Columbo, you are probably a, a mega genius. And he's just like, oh, no, no, no. I'm just a humble oh, cop. I'm just a guy. I'm just a guy. <laughs> and then the other credit that I wanted to mention just purely because the title of this show amused me. Mm. Climax. No, no, it's a film climax. It's like a fucking nightmare world. It's like Sophia Batella's is like screaming at the top of her lungs, writhing on the floor, and he's just like, darling, what are you doing? Why you do this? <laughs> <laughs> I would watch that fucking movie. I think that's it to say about our actors' spotlights. TKO. Often considered to be the worst episode i think it's a given to say we both give it a yum yes yeah well that's it for tko but it's not it yet because we'll be discussing another episode of babylon 5 next week on the next babylon 5 so what one are we discussing rachel do you know actually do you know it'll be episode 15 you don't know it is grail yeah, Grail. Yeah, you foreshadowed I said it directly. So, episode 15 of season one, Grail, which according to the DVD is amazing. So, it goes as such. The quest of a cosmic wayfarer, David Warner, for the legendary Holy Grail brings him to the station and into a man-versus-monster mind-to-mind showdown with an unholy foe, the tentacled, brain-erasing, knuckling feeder. Wait a moment, Rachel, Rachel. I'm... I'm looking. I'm looking at this description. I'm I'm flicking it over. I mean, I I, I mean, I could ask you to stand up again to see if you have the real description underneath you, but I didn't see any mention, mention of Jinxo. How could you not mention Jinxo in your description of of Grail? He's the main character of Grail. How could you not bring up Jinxo? Everyone's favorite character, Jinxo. Maybe it's just... They're saving Jinxo as a surprise. Yeah. They're saving Jinxo as a little surprise when you walk into the episode. You're like, who's this Paul Giamatti-looking motherfucker? So if Jinxo was played... By, by Paul, Paul Giamatti. Giamatti. Oh, the, my God. In the reboot. No, 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 no. I want young Paul Giamatti. <laughs> Old Paul Giamatti would most definitely be Clark, if uh, you make him oh, a character. <laughs> right? Oh, my God. I cannot unsee that now. Yeah, right, right. Oh. And you have him being like, listen here, Sheridan. Just give me over the fucking evidence. 
Uh, I was in Big Fat Liar. <laughs> it was worth bringing up Jingso for that. For that. For that. So <laughs> that is it from us. You can find us on the social medias in which we are posting little things on there, videos, photos, having further discussions about the episode itself. We are on all of them from Facebook, yeah. Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, Tumblr, mm-hmm. TikTok. All of it is in the description of this episode. Feel free to follow us on there engage with us on there if you want to engage with us with us further we have an email yum yum pod at gmail.com where you can send us over your questions queries thoughts concerns general type and of Ryan, things whatever you, you like. did a mid-episode plug for this but you want to do it again yeah i'll want to do it again by saying rachel do you want to tell them about our patreon <laughs> I'm sharing the load. Okay. You know, see, yeah. see, you know, I'm I'm letting you tell it in your way. Larry Dottilio, please deliver us what the our Patreon and what we do on there, Larry. We have a Patreon where you kindly may give us money for extra content. We discuss various pieces of media and give our thoughts on them. We see if we want to make it stuff or make it so by looking at the top and bottom five rated episodes of the various series of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Recently, or relatively recently, we did Profit and Lace. Yeah, that was a little as while back. An what a great episode, huh, guys? Profit oh, and Lace. Yay. Better than TKO? Well, you have to listen to find out what we think. Um, and we are also covering the X Men movies. Yes, we are doing uh, once a month, we're watching an X Men movie and discussing them. We ran out of Star Trek movies and we thought, hey, we don't want to see Patrick Stewart disappear just yet. Let's do the X-Men. And also because, you know, JMS, there's a lot of comparisons with the X-Men when it comes to Babylon 5. So why not? So hit us up on the Patreon. Support us on the Patreon. You also get to be a part of a group Discord in which you can talk to us further and tell us why you think TKO is a salvageable episode weeks in advance of us actually covering TKO. Oh wait, oop, you can't do that. You missed out. But you can do it with other episodes if you join that Patreon. All of it in the description as stated. Larry Dottilio, it was great to have you on for the podcast. I was so glad that we got to talk about your script and what you were trying to do. I'm glad that you were here, but could we please have Rachel back next episode? We all know that everyone comes to the podcast for Rachel. We all I would know that. say good eating to you, but I would rather see you choke. <laughs> no, 